Well, as you might have gathered so far from our service today, today is a sending Sunday. It's a day when we are specifically emphasizing uh, God's purpose in reaching the nations through our work, uh, where we are emphasizing the work of missions. Now, in particular, today, we also, not only do we have Indy Lama here, which is great, we also have the opportunity of praying for our short-term mission team going to visit the Kriglers in Grenada. So the Kriglers, Jason was a pastor here at Antioch, for those of you who didn't get to meet him. We had the privilege a little over a year ago of sending them out uh, to Grenada, and now we're sending the short-term team uh, to go help them with some projects they've been working on. Now, if you've been around Antioch for very long, you know we talk about missions a lot. We talk about missionary work a lot. And one of the terms you might have heard us use is unreached versus reached, reached and unreached. If you've ever wondered what those terms mean, let's talk about that. So uh, one term that we frequently use is the term unreached. The Joshua Project defines an unreached people group as one in which there is no native community of believing Christians with adequate numbers and resources to evangelize this people group without outside assistance. In other words, there's no Christians there, or there's so few Christians that they could not sustain a church on their own. They could not keep it going and reach their uh, community. Now, the number is a little bit arbitrary, but we have to draw a line somewhere, and so we usually draw that at about 2%. The idea goes that if about 2% of the people are evangelical Christians, then it's conceivable that someone in that culture can meet a Christian who could share the gospel with them. They are reached. So just as an example in the U.S., we talk about how Christianity has declined in the United States, but there's still more than enough Bible-believing Christians that could share the gospel with the people in our country. It's a reached country. In our desire to see people come to know Christ from every nation, every tribe, every tongue, we often talk about the unreached. We often focus on these people here in Antioch. And if we get, look at just a, that definition, Grenada would easily be an, a reached country. About 86% of the people identify as Christians. And we might be tempted to dismiss it or think, why should we send missionaries there when there's other areas that have need as well? But let me ask you this. Indy was getting at the importance of education. So what if in this culture, there were not people who were capable of sharing the gospel? Like there weren't enough people who were able to share. Would this population be able to reach its neighbors with the gospel? No, not if they don't know how to say it. And this is where we come into a different kind of term. A.J. Gibson calls this the misreached. Even though this people identifies as Christians, they're reached, there's a rampant distortion of the gospel, or there's insufficient leadership. And the result is that the church is crippled. Even though they have the numbers, they don't have the support that they need in order to effectively reach their culture. We call this the misreached. It's this category that we could talk about with Grenada and the work of the Kriglers, and it's where we're going to be focusing our time this morning. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and get out your Bibles and turn to me to the book of Jeremiah, the book of Jeremiah. Young disciples, we've been practicing this. Jeremiah comes between Isaiah and Lamentations. I hear Ethan. Thank you. Good. Between Isaiah and Lamentations. Good. Today we'll be in Jeremiah chapter 23, verses 1 through 8. If you're using one of the Bibles in the chairs, you can find that on page 650. 
today, I'm hoping to be able to answer this question, why send missionaries into a misreached context? Why send missionaries to a Christian country? And to answer that question, I'm going to be answering with this main idea. God is rescuing his global flock from bad shepherding. God is rescuing his global flock from bad shepherding. And we see that worked out in three different ways. First, the bad shepherds. Second, the good shepherds, or the good shepherd. And third, the global flock. So with that in mind, if you would, please stand with me for the reading of God's word from the prophet Jeremiah. We read this. Woe to the shepherds who destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture, declares the Lord. Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, concerning the shepherds who care for my people, you have scattered my flock and have driven them away. You have not attended to them. Behold, I will attend to you for your evil deeds, declares the Lord. Then I will gather the remnant of my flock out of all the countries where I have driven them, and I will bring them back to their fold, and they shall be fruitful and multiply. I will set shepherds over them who will care for them, and they will fear no more, nor be dismayed, neither shall any be missing, declares the Lord. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely, and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. Therefore, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when they shall no longer say, as the Lord lives, who brought up the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt. But as the Lord lives, who brought up, the, brought up and led the offspring of the house of Israel out of the north country and out of the countries where he had driven them. Then they shall dwell in their own land. Church, the Lord has spoken to us. Let's say this together. Thanks be to God. When I was in high school, my first job was as a used car salesman. That's right. I was 16, selling cars. Uh, And if that's not crazy enough, yes, the owner was also crazy. Now, there was another salesman that I happened to be working with, and he owned his own business on the side. He sold lumber uh, to contractors. He was a middleman. One time, on a failed deal, he ended up with this big pile of lumber that he couldn't sell, and so he decided it would be a great time for him to rebuild his back deck. And guess which 16-year-old he thought would be the perfect contractor? this guy. I was an aspiring engineer. I could do it, right? He offered me a whole $200 to destroy his old deck and build a, build a new deck. Isn't that great? Some of you guys are smiling, and it's because you're wiser than I was as a 16-year-old, obviously. Uh, so, I was so confident. I had made this uh, 3D computer model of what I was going to build. I got there to the work site, and the first day, I just went to town destroying this deck. It was a lot of fun. Uh, And by the end of it, sure enough, we had a nice pile of firewood uh, in the backyard. Now, the next day, I went to go lay the footings for this deck. And, you know, I came in with my plan, but I was a scrawny little teenager, and sometimes that red clay soil was a bit too hard. And so, you know, maybe I'll scoot over here a little bit to dig. 
And then uh, as I start to dig, you know, sometimes, I, you know what I forgot to bring? I forgot to bring something to measure with. So some of the holes were this deep, some of them were this deep, some of them were somewhere in between. And then, uh, you know what else I forgot to bring? A level. <laughs> so, you know, I got them as straight as I could, uh, as close as I could eyeball it. Um, but, uh, you know, it was as close as I could eyeball it. Uh, also, I had to mix the concrete for these footings. I had to use the Gatorade bucket that I had brought to carry my water in that day. Um, the next day when I got there, sure enough, not all of the beams were level. Some of them had sunk. Some of them were larger. Some of them had tilted or twisted. Uh, and so rather than go back and fix the foundation, I just started adding on the beams and started uh, putting them at an angle to help it work. Uh, I was leveling them off with a handsaw uh, to try to get them flat. <laughs> and finally, the next day, I went to add planks onto this and started screwing them in just as tight as they would go so that it would hold those beams in place. Well, you know, I wish I did too. Uh, however, the fifth day, when I showed up to the work site, there was two men waiting for me. One of them was a pastor from our church who was also a certified contractor. Uh, and he took me through very patiently and showing me bit by bit how I had totally botched this project. And at the end of it, I still remember he said, James, this thing is so shoddy. Someone's going to fall through this thing and kill themselves. So I walked away from that project with $200 check, having ruined $600 worth of lumber. I had been a bad contractor. And it was in large part because I didn't know how much I didn't know. I was poorly equipped in skill, in labor, in tools for the task ahead of me. And I wound up ruining what I had been given. I learned that while I ought to aspire to be like Jesus in a lot of ways, maybe being a carpenter was not one of them. Now, as we turn back to our passage today, we see that we're looking, we begin by looking at the bad shepherds. Jeremiah begins by critiquing the bad shepherds, the bad leaders of Israel. He writes, Woe to the shepherds who destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture, declares the Lord. Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, concerning the shepherds who care for my people, you have scattered my flock and have driven them away. You have not attended to them. Like my bad carpentry, these shepherds are bad at their jobs. They're ill-equipped and they're warping and ruining the flock that God has entrusted to them. A shepherd ought to be protecting and providing for his sheep, keeping them up, rounding them up, keeping them together. But instead, these shepherds are doing the exact opposite. They're hurting the sheep. They're scattering them, making them harder to manage, not easier. But these shepherds are not just incompetent. If we continue looking in verse 2, it uses the word evil. They're evil deeds. In Hebrew, that word evil and the word for shepherds are identical. These shepherds are evil shepherds. So just what are these bad shepherds doing that's so evil? Well, God accuses them of three things. First, they scatter the flock. While a shepherd should be rounding up the sheep and herding them to make them easier to manage, these shepherds are scattering them. They're chasing them off and making them harder to manage. Now, this is an analogy. So if we think about this in the context of the church, in a church even this size, there's a tendency to scatter, right? 
as people go about their own lives, as people go about their own jobs, as people listen to different things on their phone and the TV, on the media, all the different things, it's tempting for us to want to scatter in a million different directions, right? Even in a group this size. And so part of the struggle of our pastors and our leaders is keeping everyone herded together towards Jesus, is herding everyone in from those different directions. But that's not what these people are doing. An example came in Jesus' own ministry. Jesus had just healed someone of a demon. He had just done an incredible miracle. And the Pharisees, who called themselves the shepherds of Israel, instead of turning people towards Jesus, instead started accusing that Jesus had done it by the power of Satan. Instead of herding people towards Jesus for healing, they scattered the people away from him with their vicious words. It prompted Jesus to say, this, that whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Why have the sheep sheep scattered? Sure, they have this tendency to wander off, but we see that second, the shepherds, these leaders, are driving off the sheep. They're not just passively allowing them to wander. They're running them off. They're chasing them away. How? By their unchristlike example. We see that third, God says the shepherds did not attend to the needs of the sheep. They neglected them. You know, a good, pa- a good shepherd is proactive. A good shepherd starts looking, where is the nearest well to water my sheep? Where are the pastures green or where have they dried up? Where are the wolves that I need to avoid or to get rid of? The good shepherd goes ahead of his sheep and prepares a place for them. But that's not what these evil shepherds are doing. These evil shepherds, by contrast, neglect the needs of God's people. Later in the book of Ezekiel, in Ezekiel 34, God repeats the same imagery. And here he gets a little bit more specific. I want to take a look at this cross-reference from Ezekiel 34. Here. Like a shepherd, who uh, he says, you have not... Uh, The weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, the strayed you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought, and with force and harshness you have ruled them. So you think this is like a shepherd who instead of caring for the sheep, slaughters them. If we were to compare that to an unhealthy church, we might see this in the form of a pastor who's in it for the money who's just not caring for the wounded in his congregation, but trying to wring money out for his next Mercedes. Like a shepherd who lets a sick sheep infect the whole herd rather than separating them. We could think that this is like, uh, in the context of a church, we might think this is allowing false teaching to run rampant throughout a church rather than correcting it and trying to uh, address that issue. Third, we see like a shepherd that's too lazy to chase down the lost sheep. A church like this would be one where there's no effort towards outreach. There's no care for the lost. There's no effort towards missions or there's no no effort to welcome and greet new people and involve them in the church. And finally, we see that this is like a shepherd who beats and abuses the sheep. Sometimes in an unhealthy church, the pastor can hurt the sheep instead of help them. Now, maybe that's a prominent example, like with vicious words, like with someone like Mark Driscoll, who may have been a good teacher, but was vicious with his words towards his own people. Or, as we've seen in other news, even within our own convention, sometimes those abuses can take other forms. It's no wonder that a church like that would drive people away from Christ. 
Now, let me be clear. I don't think Antioch is that kind of church. I thank God for the shepherds, the pastors that he's put over us, and think they do a phenomenal job. But it's also humbling to recognize that most of these things that he mentions are sins of omission. Not the evil things we do towards other people, but the good things that we fail to do, failing to do what we're supposed to, that can lead to this kind of a toxic church. If we want to become the kind of church that drives people away from Jesus, we don't have to do anything. All we have to do is let our love for each other and our love for God get buried under a to-do list. But if we want to defy this picture, if we want to be a church that gathers people to Christ rather than driving them away, then it's a fight to continually renew our love for each other, for the lost, and for God. And by reminding ourselves of these things, by reminding ourselves, be careful if you think you stand, lest you fall. So what about Grenada? With our short-term team going to Grenada, what does this look like? What do evil shepherds look like here? Well, I asked Jason Krigler, and these are some of the things that he shared with me. First, about two-thirds of the country identifies either as Roman Catholic or Seventh-day Adventist. Now, why does that matter? Well, in both of these denominations, there's a strong emphasis that grace alone, forgiveness alone, is not enough. Jesus' forgiveness is not enough. You have to add your own works to it. It's a distortion of the gospel that hinders the functioning of the church. Also, uh, the Kriglers have identified within their ministry that various kinds of abuse run rampant. And, but rather than confront these sins, rather than confront these abuses, many times the pastors in these churches are either afraid to do so, or they don't know how. They're ill-equipped for dealing with this. And the result is that the church can start to look more like a sanctuary for the abusers than the abused. And that's a problem. Third, Jason said that on a positive side, people are very receptive to Bible study and to preaching. They long for it. They want it. They want to hear God's word. But why? It's because they're starving. It's because these sheep are starving for God's word. And there are well-meaning pastors who want to do that, who want to be able to provide for their sheep in this way. They just don't know how. They've been ill-equipped for the task ahead of them. And finally, Jason also comments that like in the U.S., there are plenty of people in Grenada who identify as Christians because of their nationality or because of their family and have no idea that there's more to following Christ than that. There's more richness than just that. Like a lost sheep, they don't know how much they don't know. So why should we send missionaries to a misreached country like Grenada? Because there are bad shepherds who need to be opposed in Jesus' name. Verses 1 and 2 paint a pretty bleak picture of how the shepherds have failed. And it would be pretty depressing if the passage ended there. But fortunately, with verse 2, we have a turning point. God is going to intervene. He says, Behold, I will attend to you for your evil deeds, declares the Lord. Then I will gather the remnant of my flock out of all the countries where I have driven them, and I will bring them back to their fold, and they shall be fruitful and multiply. I will set shepherds over them who will, who will care for them, and they shall fear no more, nor be dismayed, neither shall any be missing, declares the Lord. God promises to undo the work of the evil shepherds. 
Even though the shepherds did not attend to the sheep, God will attend to them for their sins until all of his sheep's needs have been attended to. It's the same word over and over again. The shepherds drove out and scattered the sheep, but God will bring them back. And when he does, what does he promise to do for them? He promises to bless them, for them to be fruitful and multiply. Now, youth, young disciples, be fruitful and multiply. Where might you have heard that phrase before? It's in Genesis. Yeah, it's the, it's the promise that God gave to Adam and Eve. It's the blessing God gave to him to them to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Do you see what God is doing here? God has always been a man of his word. From the beginning, he promised to bless them in this way, and he is continuing to fulfill that promise. He will make them fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. God is alluding here to an Edenic state. God is going to restore them to Eden, cleansed from their sins, made right in harmony with God and with each other, growing and in community and surrounded with abundance and security rather than scarcity and danger. It's a reminder that God has not forgotten his promise. And how is he going to do it? By setting good shepherds over them who will attend to their needs. In other words, God is not just going to poof this thing into existence. He's not just going to, it's all healed now. No, rather he's going to use human shepherds, use human instruments for his purposes. He's going to use the good shepherds to accomplish his purpose. And so whenever we have the privilege of sending people out, we're sending them as good shepherds in Jesus's name to do God's work. This is how God does his work. It's through the people in his congregation. However, if we weren't careful We could stop there and just be tempted to heap all of the blame on the bad shepherds and all of the responsibility on the good shepherds and chalk this up as just a leadership issue. And if it's just a leadership issue, we might be tempted to accomplish it just by political means. If I could just get so-and-so in office instead of this guy. If only this guy was out, it would be a whole lot better. But if we thought that way, then we'd be missing the point. I want you to pay close attention. Who drove away the sheep? In verse 2, we saw that the bad shepherds drove away the sheep. But look what it says here. From the lands where I have driven them. Something that God will repeat in verse 8. We see here that not only does God use good leaders as his instruments of blessing, but also hands people over to bad leaders who will carry out his purposes to judge the people. Just as a biblical example of this, God describes the wicked king of Assyria in the book of Isaiah. Now, this king of Assyria, he's a bad dude. He's got a rack of the skulls of his enemies in the town square. He's a bad guy. But yet in the book of Isaiah, God describes him as the rod of his, uh, as the rod of his anger, the means by which he would punish Israel. Again, God used the wicked desires of the Jewish crowds to kill Jesus in fulfillment of his purposes. The point goes to show that God uses good leaders as his instruments of blessing, but he also uses bad leaders as his instrument of judgment. The problem is not just an issue in leadership. It's an issue in judgment. We need to be saved from God's judgment. Because you see, the problem is that even though the sheep are vulnerable, the sheep are 
they're sheep, they're gullible, they follow bad leaders, but they're not innocent. These sheep are guilty. If we kept reading in Jeremiah 23, he describes the people as despising God, following the counsel of their hearts, and resorting to idolatry and witchcraft rather than seeking the counsel of the Lord. After all, if the sheep were perfect, no shepherd would be necessary. These people don't just need someone to save them from bad leaders, from bad shepherds. Rather, they need someone who can save them from themselves, who can save them from their own sinful, wandering hearts. And no human leader, no matter how good he is, can do that. That's why a political solution never works on its own. That's why a leadership solution never works on its own. We need a shepherd who can also shepherd our very hearts. And who is able to do that? He'd have to be a really good shepherd. Just as God promised to raise up good shepherds, plural, to replace the bad ones in verse 4, he goes on to say in this passage that he will raise up one leader, one king, who will be the good shepherd. Listen to this description in verse 5. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely, and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called, the Lord our righteousness. So how does God describe his good shepherd? Well, first we see that he is a branch, a descendant, a person of David who will reign as king over the kingdom of God. In other words, he's a man like us, born with the right as a man to be king over God's people. But second, we see he's not just any branch. He is the righteous branch who deals out justice and righteousness. In other words, this person is one who knows God's will perfectly, who does God's will perfectly, and who perfectly teaches others to do the same. He is our perfect example. But not only that, in order to make us righteous, he has to cleanse our hearts. This is a king, a shepherd, who can cleanse our heart, who can lead it in righteousness and justice back to God. And we see that next, that in his days, Judah, that is God's redeemed people, who we call the church today, will be saved, and Israel will dwell securely. This is a good shepherd from the line of David, a king over God's people, who saves them from the consequences of their sin, from their wanderings, and from the evil which seeks to destroy them. And finally, even though he is a human man, born of a woman, into the family of David, notice, what do they call him? The Lord our Righteousness. And when you see that Lord capitalized, this is Yahweh. This is the name of God himself. These people are calling him God, Yahweh, our righteousness. Not just God, but the God who is our righteousness for us. He is fully man, fully God, come to save their people and to be their righteousness on their behalf. Come to save them from their sins. They had no righteousness of their own, and yet here the throne has drawn near to them. Y'all, who is this? Who matches this description? It's Jesus. Yes, 600 years before Jesus began his ministry. We can back this up. We have the manuscripts to prove this. God revealed his son Jesus through the prophet Jeremiah. Isn't our God faithful? 
Our God promises and he delivers on his promises. He was faithful then, and let me assure you, he is faithful now. To borrow from our Exodus sermon, wherever wilderness you find yourself in, whatever hardships you might be going through right now, or like from our exile language here in this passage, know that God is faithful. He is the God who was faithful then. He is the God who is faithful to send Christ on your behalf. And he is the God who will be faithful to you because he has been faithful in everything he's done. He is a man of his word. What does Jesus have to say about this? Well, Jesus picks up the same imagery in John chapter 10. Uh, We'll put it on the screen here. He says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the father knows me and I know the father. You hear that? He knows you. This good shepherd knows where you've come from. He knows your shortcomings. He knows what goes down deep down inside your heart or inside your mind, the evil thoughts that encroach. He knows where you have wandered. He knows the purposes that he's had for you since before the beginning of time. He knows those things. And knowing those things from before the beginning of time, Christ looked out across eternity and said, I want that one. And the angels kind of look around to themselves and said, really? And Satan says, no, 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 no. You don't, you don't want, let me tell you what that person's done. But in response, what does Jesus do? And I lay down my life for the sheep. Again, verse 17, this is why the father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. You see, he does know all the deep and dark and evil in your heart. He knows you're hurt. You can't surprise him. And so just like Brad was mentioning last week, you can be honest in your lament to God. And yet in the midst of that lament, rather than give up, Jesus laid down his life for you. He bore the wrath that you deserved so that you could be made alive with God forever. He takes up his life again so that you can live with that same resurrection power. A new life, a new heart, a new purpose, living in the light of God's love. Church, that's what we need. And that's the hope that people around the world need, including Grenada. You might have noticed that I skipped a verse in John 10. Take a look at verse 16. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So then there will be one flock, one shepherd. Why do we send missionaries to a misreached context, to a Christian nation? So that Christ might not be honored in name only, but that he might receive the true reward of his suffering. We, when we send missionaries, when we go, we are reunifying Christ to his flock. And this leads us to our final point in uh, Jeremiah 23, the global flock. Look with me at verses 7 through 8. Therefore, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when they shall no longer say, as the Lord lives, who brought up the people out of, his, of Israel out of the land of Egypt. But as the Lord lives, who brought up and led the offspring of the house of Israel out of the north country and out of all the countries where he had driven them, then they shall dwell in their own land. We'll see how well you guys were listening last week. Last week, uh, when Pastor Brad was talking about lament, he mentioned a tendency that we often have. Sometimes we think, if only we could go back to the 
good old days. You guys are listening. Good job. Uh, Yes, to the good old days. It's a mindset that looks back to the past, wishing for the comforts and security of the past rather than the uncertainty of the present. Back in my day, we didn't have that. We just had to make do with fill in the blank. Or from the Israelites themselves, at least back in Egypt, we had vegetables. Here, Jeremiah is also contrasting two different mindsets. The first one says, as the Lord lives, who brought the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt. Now, that's not a bad thing to say, is it? After all, is God living? Is he at work? Did he bring Israel out of Egypt? Yes, this is a true statement. And it's a statement of faith too, as surely as the Lord lives. If God did great things back then, he'll be faithful to do great things now, and I can have confidence with him. And sometimes when we're faced with doubt, when we're going through hardship in our own lives, this can be a source of encouragement for us to look back at how God has been faithful, whether it's in scripture, whether it's in history, or whether it's in your own life, in your own testimony. It can be a source of encouragement to look back and say, God has been faithful before, and he'll be faithful again now. But there could also be a temptation behind this statement. Even for Jeremiah's audience, the events of Exodus had happened centuries earlier. And for us today, this is something that happened thousands of years ago. Couldn't they think of something more recent? And when those bad days come in your life, when those intrusive thoughts rattle in your mind, where might you be tempted to go? Well, that was then, but this is now. God did great things like that back then, but he doesn't do those things today. And if we're not careful, that kind of mindset can tempt us to despair. By contrast, I want you to look at the other mindset that Jeremiah introduces. As surely as the Lord lives, who brought the descendants of Israel out of the land of the north and out of all the countries where he had banished them. Now, this land of the north is a reference to the Assyrian exile mentioned before. Assyria, these are the bad guys of the Bible. When the Assyrians conquered Israel, they rounded up all the people and then scattered them throughout the entire Middle East. By doing that, they were hoping to make rebellion nearly impossible and to force the Israelites to adopt the language and the culture and the religion of the peoples around them. It worked. To this day, those tribes are called the 10 lost tribes of Israel because they scattered and we have no idea what happened to them after that. So notice, Jeremiah is looking forward to a work of God so great that it will even eclipse the exodus in their minds. I know recently uh, we watched the Prince of Egypt and we watched the scene where like the Red Sea splits open and you have this huge wall of water. It's an incredible miracle. We're still talking about it today, right? And yet, Jeremiah is getting at something that will eclipse even that in grandeur. God is gathering his people out of banishment, out of the consequences of their sin, from every nation to form a people for himself. What's the work he's talking about? What is this miracle? It's missions. 
God is building his church. The church is the miracle. He's creating a people for himself. He's saving them from the consequences of their sin through the saving work of the good shepherd, Jesus. He's creating a safe place for them, the church, a pasture where they will be fruitful and multiply, and they will fill the earth with the glory of God. He's bringing them out of every nation, every corner of the world, and with man, this would be impossible. But the Lord knows who are his, and he will not let one of them slip through the cracks. The Exodus was leading 600,000 people out of one country, and that's impressive. We're still talking about it. But this work of missions is leading millions of people, if not billions of people, from every country around the world. Jesus is gathering his global flock, and it's the greatest miracle in history. But has the task been accomplished? No, he says the days are coming when we can say this. It has started, but it's a work in progress. So notice, unlike the people looking back to Exodus, this is a future-looking faith. This is a faith that doesn't say, I believe because God did this a long time ago, but it's a faith that say, I believe because I see what God is doing now. It's a faith that expects God to work here, to work now, to work in our lives, and to work through our lives to the people around us. God is raising up good shepherds in this great work, and we are invited, we are commanded to take part in it. So why send missionaries to a misreach, to a Christian country? Because God is raising up his global flock from every nation, tribe, and tongue, and we can play our part in raising up good shepherds in every nation, including the Christian ones. You know, I thought I knew what I was doing when I stepped into that backyard to build a deck. But it wasn't long before I realized that I was out of my league. I was insufficient for the task ahead of me. How much more so building up a person's soul and not just putting planks together? When we face a task like the mission work or like our short-term team is going to face in Grenada, as we prepare for this kind of work, there's one of two temptations we might be tempted to feel. First, you might be tempted, like me, uh, as, a car- as a carpenter, to be full of hubris, to think, I'm going to be the savior these people need. I'm going to bring uh, the help that they need. Or on the other hand, we might be tempted to despair. I'm too small. This task is too great. I can't make a dent. Neither of these are true. Like my carpentry skills, you would make a lousy shepherd. But fortunately, you're not the shepherd that people need. Jesus is. Likewise, you're right that in your own strength you would fail. You are not adequate for this task. But the good shepherd is. And the good shepherd works through you. The good shepherd, God has raised up his good shepherd, and his good shepherd, Jesus, will raise up you. The good shepherd never fails, and he can raise you up to that work. Now, in both of these cases, we realize that apart from Christ, we can do nothing. But in him, we can bear much fruit. All of this we have to do in communion with Christ. And that's what we get to celebrate every week. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he broke the bread, or he took the bread. He blessed it, gave thanks for it, and broke it. And he gave it to his disciples, saying, This is my body, broken for you. Do eat in remembrance of me. Likewise, he took the cup, and he gave thanks for it, And he gave it to his disciples saying, drink, this is the blood 
of the new covenant, of a new promise, a new work that God is doing, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. As often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you're announcing the Lord's death until he returns. Church, today we are announcing that Christ has come once and he is coming again. And we're announcing that his kingdom extends to every nation. And we have the privilege of sending people out for that work. As we prepare to come forward, uh, there will be uh, bread and wine, or there will be bread and juice on each side for you to partake. If you want gluten-free, you can come to this side. And if you are a baptized believer in Jesus, this is for you. Come and enjoy. If you've not yet been baptized, we invite you to take that step of baptism first, announcing to the church your identity with Christ before partaking of this communion. And if that's not you, if you've not yet made that decision to follow Christ, what are you waiting for? The good shepherd is here and bread and juice aren't going to help you, but the good shepherd can. He can heal from every wound. He can bind up every infirmity and he feeds his sheep with eternal life. Come take Jesus instead. There'll be pastors waiting in the back to pray with anyone who has any need. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you are our good shepherd. You do not leave us as orphans to face the trials of this world alone, but God, you have raised up your good shepherd, Jesus Christ, to save us in all of our infirmities. God, we pray that you would be with us this week as we go out. We pray that you would be with our Grenada mission team, that they would continue to do your work in shepherding uh, and encouraging the Kriglers. God, we also pray uh, for Indy, and we thank you for his ministry in Nepal. And God, in all these things, we pray that you would continue to send out workers for the harvest. God, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.